Today's episode is supported by Vivo Barefoot, whose mission is very close to my heart. There's something incredibly powerful about feeling the ground beneath your feet. It's more than just like walking or running. It's about forming a connection with the earth, a connection that most modern footwear has unfortunately severed. Vivo Barefoot aims to mend this disconnect by making footwear that's wide, thin and flexible, enabling natural movement. Born from a long lineage of cobblers, Vivo Barefoot carries a rich heritage of craftsmanship and a deep understanding of what makes footwear truly beneficial for us. Enjoy the discount code HARVEST15. Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. The reason people sing in the shower is not just because you close the door and you're alone and nobody can hear. There's a, because of the tiles and the glass, there's a natural reverb. It's the sort of reverb that people would add to studio microphones. And when you hear that reverb, it sends your voice back to you in a bigger way. And the reverb is never exactly your exact voice. It's like it, um, it adds frequencies, top and bottom, slightly different. So, so it's like you hear a thicker version of your voice. I'm Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona. And this episode is an interview made in Caplancaya with Tom Morley. He was a founding member and drummer of Scritipoliti, an 80s band that used to improvise half of their songs on stage. Tom has also recorded with David Bowie and Madness. An expert in bringing people together, he uses a vibrant blend of music and humor to enable individuals and teams to activate their rock star energy and find their creative voice as a group. In this episode, we will talk about what Tom does today and his incredible life and successes. Hello, Tom. Hello. How are you? Yeah, good. I hope you include some of my failures and not just successes because... Uh, ah, okay, yeah, you will tell me yeah. <laughs> if you want to share them. <laughs> you don't have too many, I hope. <laughs> well, 50-50. Those 50 of uh, failures are really what made the successes deep. If you can explain your harvest to help people come out with the rock star energy they mm, have, mm. Uh, how do you do that? Someone was asking me, yeah, how can I look at any group? It could be the Harvest Group. It could be a, a bunch of lawyers in London on a team-building day. How can I have the confidence to do it? That I know inside every individual in that group there's a desire to bring out more love. They feel more loved, but they often don't know how to do it. And, and I think in our competitive society, it's made people a bit scared. They don't want to make any mistakes. And so I see that. And what I do, I, I think with humor and just kind of easy, easy kind of ways into it, I just create a safe space quickly. 
not by telling them we're all gonna, we're all in a safe space now. Because if I said that, they'd go, "I'm not, mate. Uh, you know, <laughs> don't tell me it's a safe space. Okay. I want to feel it." So, so I do it just okay. by humor, connection, easy warm up exercises that I've tried over 25 years. You know, it's a kind of act. So, so someone said yesterday, it's like stand up comedy with drums. You're like a comedian but with drums. And then by the end, we've all been laughing for 90 minutes, but we've become musicians almost by accident. When I was young, my mother died when I was 13 and I was the youngest of four boys. And my dad didn't know how to handle it. Nobody, I mean, that was in the sixties, you know, so nobody knew how to handle it. I saw everybody just break up. They couldn't talk. We couldn't mention her. Her name wasn't mentioned. So, so I think, I've had this inner drive my whole life to bring people together and also to bring people together in crisis because I think in crisis we have two options. We either go and sort ourselves out in a corner somewhere or we come together and we say, we're in crisis, how do we manage it? What strengths do we bring? How do we listen more? And how do we kind of confess that life hasn't turned out. I mean, this is like the failure that I was talking about at the beginning. You know, life kind of failed quite early for me because you're meant to grow up with two parents and and then leave home and come back with children. (laughs) I did none of those things. But I've always looked for how do I connect people? Because I know, having spoken to my brothers later in life, that we actually all wanted to come together, but we didn't know how. So we all went away separately. And So you're kind of fixing this. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm <laughs> <laughs> in London, I, I remember one day I was standing at a bus stop in the rain waiting for a bus, and there was, I think there was four of us there in the bus shelter, and I heard a woman sort of singing a tune just to herself. I said, oh, are you a singer? She said, no, I'm not a singer. And I said, oh, but she was from Ghana, and I knew a Ghanaian song, an African Ghanaian song. And I said, can I sing you this song? And um, she said, oh, yeah, I know that song. And then other people at the bus stop got interested, and by the time the bus came, we were singing in three-part harmony. Huh. You know, So we got on the bus singing in three-part harmony. Like I say, I have this drive just to make something out of. So that was a rainy day. If you've ever been in London on a rainy day, it's not the best kind of <laughs> opportunity. <mean>. Yeah. <laughs> Which I've is often. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, instead we got on, the, got on the bus singing in harmony. My grandmother, who grew up in London, in the East End, in World War II, when um, the bombs were dropping overhead, they used to go down into the tube station, the underground, to protect themselves. And I suppose they liked down there. And she said, well, we, we used to sing because the children were anxious, so we used to sing. So I said, what, the singers used to sing? She said, no, we all used to sing. But people are scared of singing. Well, what do you mean? The singers and the actors and performers used to sing. And she said, no, we all used to sing because the children needed to hear the voices of their parents in the song to reassure them so they could go to sleep. And that really taught me something. Uh, you know, I was talking about crisis earlier on. People have a choice. Now, those people were in crisis. 
What choice did they have? Oh, I'll go to music lessons for three months and then I'll come back and sing to my child. That option wasn't available. <laughs> they just had to sing right now so uh, the children could sleep and then they could live yeah. another day. As we know, that's what this Harvest series is partly about. The world is in crisis. The crisis isn't coming in five years' time. The crisis is now. So just like my grandmother and her friends, we need to start singing in harmony. What are the resistance you find in people when they're not uh, professional or they're not self-confident? The resistance, I think, comes from living in a society, in the West anyway, that is built on competition. The whole of business is built on competition. Therefore, that moves into the education system, which is built on competition. And the teachers, they're not bad people, but music teachers need to win prizes for the school, partly so the school gets good marks. In England, anyway, I'm just talking okay, about the yeah, UK. Sure. Um, so the school is seen as a good school to send your child to. It wins prizes. Therefore, especially in the arts, the people who are good at art or the people who are good at music get praise in the class. And they say, I want you to sing a solo in the, at our school concert or in our school competition with other schools. You three, you're quite good. So you be behind the soloist. The rest of you, mime at the back. I've heard this many, many okay. times. Children thought... They run home, say to their mother, I've got this special part in the school choir. I've, I've been told to mime. And the teacher actually says that to them. I'm making you a special person. Don't sing, basically. So we grow up thinking, all right, so Susan is the singer in the class. The other 30 of us, all beside three who are good enough to back her. The rest of us, we can't sing. Yeah, and so, that's too bad because it's a natural thing to sing, to want to yeah, sing when you were yeah, a, yeah, yeah, a yeah, mother yeah, sings yeah. to her babies. Yeah, yeah. The children love to sing, they love songs. Yeah, yeah. I think as Picasso said, um, we're all born artists, we're all geniuses at the age of four. Well, we're not geniuses at the age of 20. He says, what happened to that genius? What? It's as if we accept that it goes away as we need to start paying bills and write CVs and that. But actually, yeah. it doesn't go away. So yeah. that means my job is actually very easy because all I have to do, it's in, the, in your intro, you refer to it as rock star energy. It, it's um, in business, they call it discretionary effort. It's the effort you bring to something that you've been holding back because you haven't really known how to use it. It's that energy from, from those children who were shut down. It's waiting to come out. I mean, it's singing and using our voice is an evolutionary step. You know, I say to groups, especially people who say, oh, I can't sing. I say, look, let me tell you, your teacher may have told you you can't sing as a child, but you would not be alive today if you hadn't learned to use your voice to get what you want. I say, let me give you an example. Ed, everyone has sung this song, right? I can't come in today. Bit of a dodgy tummy. Might be better tomorrow. I'll let you know. Bye. <laughs> it's, it's how we sing a song to our boss on the telephone. <laughs> we don't go, can't come in today. <laughs> a bit of a dodgy tummy. <laughs> I might be better tomorrow. I'll let you know. Bye. You know, that would 
we don't do that. And so there's a song to that. And it's got this. Uh, yeah, and we, so, you know, nobody can tell me they can't sing because we've all done it, you know. What are you trying to uh, make them achieve to these people who think they cannot sing and in the end sing? Yeah, well, like, like I said at the beginning, I think there's a lot of love in people that doesn't get a chance to express itself. In many ways, I just orchestrate love. I amplify it in the group because it's already there and it wants to, it's just like turning up and amplify it. It's already there. So what do they get out of it? More love. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and more, more love and connection with others in the group. So it becomes, it's not just love between, you know, what do we have yesterday? It's maybe 60 people. It's not just 60 individual loves getting a little bit bigger. It turned into just beautiful. You, Because the way I teach, I get people connecting. I get them towards the end. I get them inventing stuff. I, I say the groove is found at the, at the intersection of discipline, surrender, and mischief. So I start with some discipline, start with some basics. The surrender comes with when you can play the basics. And then I set up an exercise that is actually, if I'd have told them at the beginning, we'd be doing that in half now, they'd say it was impossible. But it's possible because the way I set it up, they have to surrender. They, their mind has to surrender. They cannot mm. do the exercise and think their way through it. And then the mischief comes towards the end where I go, all right, I've taught you the basics. You know about surrender. Now I'm going to break you into groups of six is what we did yesterday, six and seven. And I want you to invent something to impress the rest of us. And we're all going to come and watch you. And then we're going to watch the next group. And we're going to sort of seven... Uh, different performances and they use the drums in different ways and they dance you know maybe two people play four people dance maybe they build it up from chaos into rhythm or it's beautiful i i it, it's my favorite part of any workshop and i don't do anything at all <laughs> except watch them Make the stuff up and the perform. part you enjoy the most is uh, when they deliver their uh, yeah their creation yeah yeah well It's a good question. It's my favorite part is watching them create it because I don't, it, it doesn't always go to plan when they perform it, but watching them create it and interact and talk. A lot of these people have never met before and here they are doing this amazing thing they didn't believe they could do. All their teachers said don't do it. All their children laughed at them when they sang at home and here they are making something new with strangers which is one of the most bonding experiences but that but it's the greatest experience and learning for them that's what i want you know that's what i want them to take away ah that thing we thought we couldn't do it and we and not only did we do it but it was funny it was connecting and uh, everybody loved it because i make sure they all get massive applause at the end Mm -hmm. which they do. Nobody has to fake it. I mean, they were just celebrating yesterday. And Tom Molly would always make sure everybody would get a lot of applause. In Kaplankaya, he played a pivotal role in shaping the harvest experience. He organized workshops. It was very... You know, at the beginning I was uh, a bit shy 
because you, it's not music but it's the rhythm that you have to engage with your whole body and uh, but it was amazing because it was like a language between people you don't know and then you the way it expresses and it opens all your you know your uh, blocks so it was uh, yeah very revealing on the last night Tom surprised everyone by distributing musical instruments to the participants of Harvest, igniting a funny symphony on the beach. Another standout moment was when Adrian, the genius violinist from New Southern, invited Tom to join him for an improvisation that seemed to have been meticulously planned months in advance. Which advice would you give to someone who wants to reintegrate the practice of music, singing, in his life? The reason people sing in the shower is not just because you close the door and you're alone and nobody can hear. There's a Because of the tiles and the glass, there's a natural reverb. It's the sort of reverb that people would add to studio microphones. And when you hear that reverb, It sends your voice back to you in a bigger way. And the reverb is never exactly your exact voice. It adds frequencies top and bottom, slightly different. So so it's like you hear a thicker version of your voice. So if you begin in the shower and then you go to any singing group, it could be rock choir, it could be a church choir if you're religious, it could be anything that where you can kind of sing in the background until you get some confidence. So I suppose my advice to anybody who wants to expand it, you know, go and be somewhere where singing <laughs> is going on and see, see what happens within you because you have to give yourself permission to join in. I suppose that's, that would be my answer. Give yourself permission to join in, be it in the shower, listening to the radio, in the car. And from there, I suppose I'd say have the courage to take the next step, whatever it is. The next step will occur to you if you begin. You mentioned uh, in your workshops like uh, surrender, invention, but before Dis- discipline. discipline. Yes. Yeah. How discipline was important in your life when you learn a drum? Mm, that's a great question. I was at art school. I was going to be an artist. I wasn't going to be a musician. But we decided, myself and two friends decided to form a band and one could play bass, one could play guitar. So we didn't have a drummer. So I, my family background, my, my, my dad, when he became very depressed about my mum's death, just kind of fell apart. He, he was no good at paperwork or anything. So I got a grant to go to art school, but he didn't fill the papers in. So I got my grant money right at the end of art school I survived you know like a scavenger for the rest of the term but um so consequently when I wanted to buy a drum kit I the the grant money arrived they suddenly said oh you should have got this at the beginning of the term so I went and bought a drum kit with it and uh, I tried to play it and I was useless absolutely useless so it was um I put the whole drum kit in the corner of my room except the snare drum And I thought, I'm going to learn just to play one drum. Luckily, higher education then was all free. So I went to the music college and I said, do you have a free 
drum lesson that I can come to? And they said, yeah, sure, you know, come and, come, come yeah. and learn to play the okay. snare drum. Mm -hmm. So I just learned to play the snare drum for maybe three months and then gradually I started taking other drums out the corner of the room and adding them. So I disciplined myself because I wasn't going to be, you know, I'm quite proud in a way. I wasn't just going to be a bad drummer. If you look at calligraphy, Japanese calligraphy, what is it? It's a few marks. But the discipline to do those marks, to do those brush strokes, it's, it's a lifetime, you know, lifetime. So, and I think there's, there's a lot of freedom in discipline. It's a paradox. Tom Morley was a drummer of the British band Scritti Politi. The band was formed in Leeds, England in 1977 and has a unique sound. Scritti Politi's music is celebrated for its fusion of pop, new wave and post-punk influences, delving into themes of love, relationships and social commentary. Tom's musical journey didn't end there. He went on to collaborate with iconic artists such as Madness and the legendary David Bowie. Let's talk now about his remarkable story and the revolutionary spirit that still inhabits him. Tom, can you tell me more about uh, the adventure of uh, forming Scritti Polity? We formed the band uh, at art school. We were originally copying bands like The Clash and The Sex Pistols, which was all... You know, you only need three chords and you can get on stage and play. That's why, that's why I bought that drum kit, confident that even though I hadn't grown up as a drummer playing biscuit tins and stuff, which is what most drummers will say. I was a drummer since I was a child. I always knew I was going to be a drummer. I didn't know that. I didn't have that. It, it, was, re it was really more a political decision I made and a hard decision to give up what I was good at, which was visual art and be a musician because, and I wanted to be a musician because we had a, it was quite a radical left-wing creative revolution, let's put it that way, within the punk movement and the new wave movement. You could actually sing political songs in a way that the 60s, well, I grew up in the 60s with flower power and everything. There was a political message to the Beatles and Stones and people and uh, Captain Beefheart. It was more like, Leading by example, it's like follow us and our philosophy of love and peace and understanding. You know, the clash were more like, let's have a revolution now. So we wanted to be part of that. So, yeah, we formed Scritti Politi. We were originally called the Against, but then we've, we changed to Scritti Politi based on Antonio Gramsci's writing, Scritti Politici, which is the book he wrote, I believe, in prison. And Gramsci wrote, about the power of hegemony. If you control the common sense of a society, then you don't need guns, you don't need coercion. People police themselves. This policing themselves come back to that singing. I can't sing because I know I can't sing because I'm basically, they're policing themselves not to be embarrassing in public when their children are around, not to embarrass themselves at a team building thing. So this whole thing of hegemony, that was really the basis of forming the band. So we, well, I, I didn't join the band. We formed it. We created it out of really a desire to be involved 
in what we thought was going to be, and to a certain extent was, a new revolution. Because if you grow up in any way creative and frustrated by the restrictions of the world, you'll want to join a revolution. I can feel that here. The people who come here and they go, you know, d define the revolution to me and I'll sign up. Tom, you've been <laughs> uh, working about, I cannot not ask, I know you've been asked probably a certain time, but you've been working with David Bowie, Tina yeah. Turner, uh, Tears for Field, Madness. Do you have like fabulous memories and anecdotes yeah. uh, about uh, all these persons? Mm. Well, David um, was one of, also one of those people who said, you know, go to your edge and go a little bit further. You know, get out of your depth, swim. So I was working with Madness in West Side Studios in the West End, Dave, Clive Langer's um, studio, who was Madness producer. Yeah, I got invited to work with them. It was, it was by accident. I'd left Scritty. I was writing my own songs, and I was sitting by the canal in Camden Town just thinking of some lyrics. And Mark Bedford from Madness went by on his bicycle. They're, they're all very down-to-earth people. You know, he, he wasn't taking a limo to the studio. He's going by on his bike. And he came back. He said, oh, you're Tom, aren't you? Because we were all, the way we recognized each other then, we weren't all on Facebook and everything. If you were in the music papers, then people would know you. Got your face on the cover of something or other, or just inside. We all read the music papers, so we all knew each other. So he came back and he said, oh, what are you up to? He just sort of introduced himself. And he said, oh, I'm just cycling down to our studio. We've just built a studio and we're looking for people to try it out. And I said, well, that's coincidental because I'm just thinking up some lyrics. And he said, oh, come down. So consequently, I got to work with them doing some drum programming. And David Bowie was working in the studio next door also being produced by Clive Langer. And I thought, oh, David Bowie, how, how do I introduce myself? Oh, God, you know, because there was a little coffee area. Anyway, so I went towards the coffee area. He said, oh, Tom Morley, um, Scritty Politi. Yeah. And he said, good, um, I'm glad because I need someone to help me with some hand claps on a, clap, on a track we're just playing. So there we are, you know, like, like any rock star movie, one headphone on, one headphone off. You know, around a microphone, me and David Bowie, just so that's how it started. Then he had other percussion things he wanted during the time we were there, which was a number of weeks. So we were just hanging out. And um, if we needed a bottle of wine or something, he, at that time he was living in Switzerland. So, and it was late at night. You couldn't get anything in London. So I'd go, oh, I know a place. And go, oh, I'd take my car. So I'd have this driver driving me to some backstreet restaurant in Notting Hill where I knew I could get as a bottle of wine, you know. This. So it was this mad life. We didn't take a lot of photos because Clive, the producer, he, he knew David was part of the deal with using that studio. Was There's no publicity, no journalists, okay. no. Da, da. So the, the weird thing is I thought, oh, I got no photos at that time. Therefore, that memory is of no use to me. However, when I talk about it, I know People make their own images, so I can just write about it. It doesn't all have to be. Dave, David was the first rock star who deliberately would sweep through a hotel. I mean, he did it deliberately. He'd sweep through a hotel foyer, not even acknowledging the journalists and the cameras because he wanted to make himself into a star. And then so when eventually he would do an interview, 
it was a big thing. Yeah. Whereas other bands would say, oh, I'm going to be interviewed by the local newspaper. Brilliant. <laughs> so they'd do anything to, for a bit of publicity. He wouldn't do that. He knew exactly what he was doing. But then having done it, he didn't need to do it anymore. So he just became this really friendly guy when he wasn't doing that. One question. How do you look quickly at the music industry today? It reminds me to some extent of the late 70s, early 80s, because we we were pioneers of do-it-yourself records. So we recorded, we took our tapes to the to the acetate makers, took that acetate to the pressing plant, hand-stamped our white labels on the kitchen table. So we knew every aspect of the music business and record production. And today it reminds me a bit of that because you can bypass big labels, you can become a YouTube star without speaking to any music business people at all. It's completely fan-led, you know, build yourself a fan base and, you, and, and then from there you can start selling. Harvest of the day, that's a question I'm asking to all the guests. Yeah. If there is one thing that gives you hope, What is it? Jamie Wheel talk, talks about radical hope and he talks about leaving space for grace. So even though politically I could tell you the world is in chaos, in crisis, I think leaving space for grace means my heart stays open to opportunities that come that I couldn't have possibly imagined. But I'm ready because I have the discipline and I have the wisdom to surrender and I have the mischief to promote the hell out of it when it happens, if 300 of us here were to go away with that kind of spark, ah, here's an opportunity to make the world a bit better. If there's 300 of us and we go and spread that message to, what, another 10 people in our circle, that's 3,000, My maths are correct. So, and those 10, so the bang, bang, bang. So the, at that point, it becomes exponential. So the sort, so the, so the freedom to be inspiring. Let's just put it that way: intelligently inspiring. The freedom and the confidence to do that—that that we learn here, we take out to the world—becomes exponential. That gives me hope, and I've seen it a number of times here, just being here, and I know. Jamie, and I know some of the other speakers, I know they're doing that already. Then I think that space for grace that any economy or any kind of protocol or any efforts to shut us down, we bypass all those. We go, yeah, it's, someone was talking about a new paradigm. Well, I mean, yeah, we do need a new paradigm, but it's not going to be set up by a political party. It's going to be set up by individuals acting independently around that space for grace and that radical hope and that creative spark. We will create it. Thank you very much, Tom Morley, <laughs> for sharing your successes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you for being at Harvest. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode, exploring Tom Molly's perspective on music, his passion for people coming together to create music, in times of crisis, and how it all ultimately amplifies love. 
If you did, please leave us a positive review and follow us on Instagram at Harvest Series. You can also watch our podcast on youtube.com slash Harvest Series. Our next episode will be a conversation with Alex and Alison Gray, renowned visionary artists and influential figures in the world of art and consciousness. They will share their artistic journey and love story. Until next time. Thank you.